Here we go. You are listening to Law and Gospel Open Mic Friday on this July the 23rd in the year of our Lord 2021. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and I like responding to emails that I've received at KFUO for Law and Gospel. Uh, This one from a pastor in Texas. Thanks so much for your Law Gospel Lectionary Insights on your Monday program. It has aided my early study and meditation for the coming Sundays enormously. All right, what's he talking about? Well, I have kind of a set way of doing things Monday through Friday. Monday, we take a look at one of the lessons for the following Sunday. Tuesday, we take a look at the hymn assigned for that Sunday. Wednesday, we just do various items of theology. Thursday, with Wes Reimnitz, we take a look at an issue that you may be confronting. And Friday, we kind of report on emails that we have received. So, appreciate that the meditation I do on Monday is helpful. And I think I can tell you why it's helpful. I kind of look through the readings for the coming Sunday with the purpose of finding something that appears to contradict Lutheran theology. Uh, For example, in yesterday's sermon from Ephesians, it says we are saved because God abolished the law of the commandments. Now, the vast majority of people who read that think that it's saying that God abolished the commandments. And obviously that's not true because if you take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, God in the person of Jesus Christ not only speaks specifically of the commandments, but he makes a point that we break them just not by a deed that we do wrong, but also by a thought and a word. So what does it mean that he abolishes the law of the commandments? Well, let me say that again, only I'll reemphasize the specific word. And God saves us because he abolishes the law of the commandments. Now, you see, the commandments are law, but there is a law that supersedes the commandments, and it's found in the book of Genesis. In the day that you sin, you shall surely die. In other words, it's called the curse of the law. Now, you would say, well, Adam and Eve sinned, and they didn't die. Well, you need to understand that the word death in that context doesn't mean physical death, but death from Jesus Christ. There isn't a person outside of Jesus born into the world that does not have original sin. And therefore, what Jesus did on the cross is he abolished this curse, this law of the commandments so that those who trust in him, guess what? They will not be held accountable for their sins because Jesus took the punishment 
on himself. He was your substitute. So there are hundreds of passages that if you just read the English, you'll say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't that contradict another part of Lutheran theology, like Luther's catechism, etc.? So that's why we do the Long Gospel Lectionary on Mondays in case people are getting ready to start looking at the following week's lessons. And I try and give an insight that isn't easily recognized just by reading the English. All right, next letter. And you can understand why this was anonymous. I'm so afraid I might go to hell for what I did. I was raised in a Christian church since I was born. I was baptized when I was about 12. And then he gives his age. I just left the church a month ago and am now living with some other relatives. The reason I left is because within the last month I was there, I had had sexual relations on several occasions with a married girl. Our relationship had grown over the last two years. We were getting so afraid that people might find out, and we knew how sinful it was. So we both left the church. That was about a month ago. Now she lives with friends outside the church. I live with relatives in another state. She has since confessed and repented to her father and been forgiven and is now contemplating whether to rejoin her husband or to get a divorce. I know I need to receive forgiveness. I repent of my sin to God and I want to be forgiven. But I know my old pastor always said that you have to confess to an actual person and be forgiven by an actual person. I want to. I have not had immoral sexual relations since I left. And I intend on glorifying God with the rest of my life. But right now, I have not confessed to any pastor. And I'm afraid that if I die tomorrow, I will go to hell. I am physically safe and secure with my relatives now. But spiritually, I am so scared. And he wanted me to reply to him. So what did I say to him? Well, the first thing I noticed in this email was what his old pastor had said, that you have to confess to an actual person and be forgiven by an actual person. I don't really find that anywhere in the Bible when we're dealing with a specific sin. For example, even in the church, when we confess our sins, there is not a place in the confession where you speak out loudly what that sin is. You indicate you're a poor, miserable sinner, deserving nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. And what does a pastor say? 
upon this your confession, I by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word announce the grace of God to you. And in the stead, that means in the place of, and by his permission, namely that of Jesus, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is called a common confession and absolution. The word absolution means that you are absolved of that sin. Do you have the necessity of having to go to someone to express what sin you did in order to be truly forgiven? No, I would say that you already have been forgiven from your own words, namely that you repent of your sin to God. I want to be forgiven and I intend on glorifying God with the rest of my life. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to fall into more sin. But that is a Christian attitude of faith. So I don't think it's necessary that when you have done a specific sin, that you need to go to the pastor to get specific forgiveness. Luther used to think that way. And his pastor, Bugenhagen, boy, he wasn't that happy when Luther would come to confession because he would spend a lot of time trying to go over all the sins he had done, thinking he had to confess each one. No, that's not necessary. However, I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your pastor, but I do know that for the 28 years I was at my former congregation where I was a full-time pastor, there were a number of times when people would come in and confess a sin. In fact, I've spoken a couple of times about that woman who had been accosted by two men, and after she was able to escape, she waited in their front yard in bushes with a gun, wanting to put them to death. And by God's grace, she did not fire the gun. Now, she felt that therefore, boy, I need to confess my sin to the pastor. I have never told anyone except her mother because she had phoned me to talk to her daughter over what had happened. You see, when a pastor hears a sin, we are to be confidential about it unless it's going to lead to even more sin. So if somebody came into my office and said, Pastor, I'm really short on money but I'm going to go on Friday at about 11 o'clock in the morning and rob the Bank of America. And I just wanted to tell you that so you would forgive my sin. Well, I would, first of all, try and show them 
that they were not truly repentant. Second of all, I would not forgive a sin that they were intending to do. And third of all, I would make it clear that forgiveness is not something that you can buy from the pastor simply by telling what you're about to do. So there are some grounds for forgiveness. And it's heard in what the pastor says in the apology. Upon this, your confession. I'm not really, well, how shall I put this? I'm not really concerned whether your confession is an accurate one or whether you truly mean to confess. That's between you and God. But I will assume that what you are saying to me about a sin you have done is true and that you are confessing of it. And then I would forgive you. And it appears to me that you need to hear that word of forgiveness on this particular sin. And we pray that the Lord would lead you perhaps to a pastor you trust. Issues Etc. often talks about that they have some of the smartest listeners on radio. And you can see that when they read their emails or are talking to someone who has a question. Well, those smart listeners occasionally listen to Law and Gospel also. And I got this from a pastor. He's talking about, is this a legitimate correlation? And he's talking about the three uses of the law and also the three articles of the creed. Let me talk about what he's saying. There are three uses of the law that God has. We understand them as curb, mirror, and rule. The curb use is for the government to keep down violence, thievery, and other bad things in society. And therefore, they use it to curb someone, just like a curb keeps a car from going up on the sidewalk, so also the law keeps a person from doing evil. The second use that God has and the third use are for Christians. The second use is that of a mirror. How many times do people think that they have no need of Jesus Christ because they aren't that bad a sinner? That's the purpose of the law. It's like putting a mirror in front of you and you see, oh, yes, I do sin. And therefore, it moves you to look to Jesus Christ for salvation. And the third use of the law is as a rule or a guide. I mean, how many times as a pastor have I had a visitor to my office say, Pastor, 
what should I do about this situation? And some of the questions you may think are kind of silly, but none of them are for that person. I had one individual who says, do I need to buy a car that's made in the United States or can I purchase a car that's made in another country? Of course, other questions are more serious. I am in love with this woman. Should I marry her or not? As I look back over the many questions I have been asked, a lot of times I can't give an answer, but I can give proper options. Someone may come in and say, my father is in a hospice, he's very near death, and he asked me about whether he could do physician-assisted suicide. Well, I can answer that with a clear no. And I can give some other options to help out in that situation. That's called the third use of the law. It is a response of the Christian life. Now, what this email writer does, he says, there seems to be a legitimate correlation between the three uses of the law and the three articles of the creeds. Now, let's take the Apostles' Creed. The first article talks about God the Father. The second article talks about God the Son. And the third article talks about the Holy Spirit. So, here's what he did in his email. Isn't it interesting that the first use of the law is to curb how things are going on in the world. And the first article of the creed is God the Father as creator of the world. Then the second use of the law is a mirror to show us our sins. And the second article is about Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, that shows us our Savior. The third article is the response the Christian should have in a Christian life. And how does that come about? Well, he points out that the third article of the creed is about the Holy Spirit who creates and enables. So, he says, the first use and the first article both seem to be dealing with the created world and how it works or should work according to God's law and God's plan. The second use of the law and the second article seem to deal with sin and its solution. The third use and the third article appear to deal with sanctification which is, of course, the response of the Christian life to God's word. Then he writes, I suppose this has always been there right in front of me, but I only just noticed it. No one made the connection for me before. I guess it was just so obvious it was assumed. Well, I hadn't either made that connection and I appreciated the writer for writing to me about it. 
All right, going on to uh, another email. Dear Pastor Teacher Baker, as I have told you in the past, I belong to a Bible study at work where we meet twice a month. This past study, an evangelical friend of mine told how he struggles with a verse in Mark chapter 11. Could you teach me how to teach my friend on how to handle this verse? I know you are busy, but I started a discussion on this in the Law and Gospel Forum, and I'm getting all kinds of different replies. I believe this would be a great opportunity for someone like yourself to clarify the interpretation and application of Bible passages in Mark chapter 11 from a law and gospel context, much like you do on your program. So I took a look at Mark chapter 11, and in his email, he doesn't specifically indicate which verse he's having a problem with. But Mark 11 is about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Then something very interesting happens, beginning with verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So this would be Monday. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Now, Mark is the one who indicates to us that obviously this is not the time of the year for fruit to be present on the fig tree. The fig tree is in leaf. And when it's like that, it's a very beautiful tree. But Jesus curses it because there's nothing for him to eat on it. And so why would he do that? Is this the first time he curses something for when it is not the fault of that being cursed? But then scripture interprets scripture. The next verse, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's actually quoting from Jeremiah, which Jeremiah said to the people before the Babylonian captivity of what they had done to the temple. You see, 
they had used the room to sell their items and to exchange money that was to be used for worship by the Gentiles, by the women, by the children. And so they had made the house of prayer into more than a den of robbers, a den of murderers. By the way, verse 18 says, this led the chief priests and the scribes who heard it trying to seek a way to destroy him. So how do we understand this fig tree? The temple is like the fig tree. It's a beautiful building. Even later, the disciples talk about the beautiful stones that it's made out of. But it isn't providing proper fruit for the people. People are being given the impression by the scribes and Pharisees they can buy their way into heaven by their sacrifices. And the scribes and Pharisees would make a lot of money because they had to use the coinage which they minted rather than the coins that people had from other countries. So the cursing of the fig tree is parallel to the cursing of the temple. And we know that in AD 70, it was brought to the ground by the Romans. And even if it were to be rebuilt, it would never be the temple of the Lord. So it may look good, but is it bearing fruit? Similarly, does your church just look good? Or does it have proper worship with the confession of sins, hymns that glorify Jesus, and a liturgy that points to him along with the sacraments? On Monday's Long Gospel, we'll pick up a reading for the following Sunday from a law and gospel perspective. God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.